Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, we are joined by Martha Wilcoxon. Martha's roots are in the financial services industry. She holds FINRA Series 7, 24, 63, and 65 registrations through Commonwealth Financial Network and is a certified financial planner. Martha has a keen interest in industry compliance and has served as a FINRA arbitrator for the states of Oregon, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, and Tennessee since 2000. She's a graduate of the FINRA Horton School of Business CRCP program, University of Pennsylvania. In this role, Martha became curious about decision-making processes and situations of dispute and conflict. This curiosity led her to complete the master's degree in negotiated conflict resolution from the Crichton University School of Law and education doctorate from Crichton University in interdisciplinary leadership. Today, Martha teaches business ethics in the MBA program at Colorado State University Pueblo, is a board member of the National Association for Community Mediation, and runs her mediation consulting practice, Colorado NDR, focusing on small firm dispute resolution. Blessed with Southern Colorado climate and recreation, she enjoys bike riding, hiking, and golf. She also enjoys coral reef scuba diving and destination bicycling. Martha is a public speaker on issues of women's business development and financial literacy. Good morning, Martha, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Hey, thank you very much, Mary. It was such a pleasure meeting you at NAFCOM, National Association for Community Mediators, and that was such a lovely meeting. Did you have a good time? I Yes, absolutely enjoyed it. And I think the thing that I enjoyed the most uh, in meeting you is a good example. There are mediators from all over the nation and from all different types of practices. And yours is one of the most powerful and the most unique, I think, that I met. So, uh, Well, thank you. And kudos to you. Well, thank you very much. And certainly meeting you is definitely a highlight. I find this kind of work relatively lonely. And so it's so lovely to, to meet other practitioners and just to be energized for so many people who are working for peace in the way that their life has unfolded for them. So there's so many different ways that we can be beacons for treating ourselves and others with respect and, and uh, helping to bring about peaceful resolutions to difficult situations. You know, that's that's exactly right. And I I agree 100%. I'm in a regional area in the southern part of Colorado. So being, you know, not in the mainstream of things has always been a bit of a challenge. And I think the biggest challenge is that the community is not fully aware of the services of community mediation or mediation practices in general. And being sole practitioners, as you mentioned, we're so busy doing what we're doing that we don't get out and and market. That's right. Or get to talk to other people to commiserate and to share successes and and best practices, which is always lovely. We, We all know we have much to learn. And I think one thing I love about the practice of mediation and and working for peace is recognizing that we're all on a journey. We're not just doing it for other people. We're also trying to learn and be better every day. That's exactly right. And, you know, these are such unsure times that I think that it's a period in history where people are actually seeking that understanding. Absolutely. So, Martha, we want to hear about you. And will you tell us the first job you ever had? The first job I ever had? Yes. In my whole life? Your whole life. When you were 13 or 17 or 12. Oh, I had the best job, Mary. I grew up in a small town in Oregon. And uh, it was on the Columbia River where the Hood River and the Columbia River come together. And so it was a fisherman's paradise. And uh, the local sporting goods store sold supplies to fishermen. And uh, one thing that they needed were night crawlers for bait. But he didn't have a source of night crawlers. So this is when I was 12 years old. So I struck a business deal with Jerry Stewart, who had Stewart Sporting Good. And every night I'd go out and collect night crawlers, believe <laughs> it or not. And then early in the morning, and this was at the crack of dawn, like 5.30, I'd pedal my bike up to Jerry Stewart's and sell 
the night crawlers for a penny a piece to Jerry. And then he'd turn around and sell it to the fishermen for two cents a piece. It was a, a perfect business model. So that was my first job. Oh my goodness, what a fun first job. Absolutely. And you started as an entrepreneur. How amazing is that? Yeah, and I didn't even know it at the time. I just knew <laughs> that I liked collecting the money. All right. So from going out as, after the sun has set to collect your night crawlers and then selling them, where did you go from there? What were some early jobs you had? You know, it, mostly in the service industry. And I think that that was probably a value. I didn't appreciate it at the time, but working with the general public is an experience that really gives you an appreciation for the differences in in individuals. And I think it gave me a good background to go into mediation. For example, during the summers when I was at university, I worked at a Safeway. And being summertime help, they had me on the eight items or less line all the time. So I was dealing with customers that were rushed and, and wanted to sneak in, you know, 20 more items. <laughs> anyway, it, it was a good experience for me when I was young to uh, see the different types of people. So when you think about the, that job you had at Safeway, what was your manager like? You know, the manager, he was really transactional. And I get it. You know, it's it was for a chain and he was really middle management. And this is one thing that I appreciate with the decision making process of groups. We really need to be aware what the influences are, what the organizational influences are that drive decision making. But my manager, yes, he was very transactional and this is how you do it. And uh, don't ask why. Hmm. And as a young person, did that did that bother you? Did it seem no, just fine? No, you know what it. Uh, I think as a young person, young people tend to accept direction a little bit more. You know, certainly more than I do now as an older person. I I tend to question more, of course. I think, you know, as we talked about at conference, it's those experiences that influence your compassion and understanding of others. And that was one of them. I think that's really interesting because now given your life experience and you can look back and see, okay, this person was middle management. There are these organizational structures and issues and pressures. But many times, of course, as the employee, we just see the impact of somebody's behavior directly and we don't think so much about why they're doing what they're doing that's a great point and that's so very true too you know recollections are are valuable the more knowledge you gain and that that's true i see it in a different light certainly than i did when i was 20 years old so what did you go to university for but what did you major in well it's it's interesting i went to oregon state that's where i met my husband and I graduated in uh, public administration. And I really felt that I wanted to work in either a state or a federal agency. But uh, life takes you on a marvelous journey. And my husband moved to Australia and I followed him. And we were married and I was able to do graduate studies in business. And I found that that was my true, true calling. It, long story short, I ended up in the financial area in, uh, as a certified financial planner. But when I was in Australia, this was a time when women weren't as, as visible in the business area. Mm -hmm. And when I was there, interest rates were particularly high and government bonds were sold through the banks. So I went to our bank, made a made an appointment. I wanted to buy some Australia bonds that were yielding, you know, 12 and 13 percent. Well, I made the appointment and uh, went in and sat across from the from the manager. And he looked at his watch and he said, well, when is your husband coming in? <laughs> and I said, well, these are for me. This I'll be buying the bond. I think he patted my hand. I'm not sure. But he said, <laughs> why don't you come back in with your husband? 
So that was that was very valuable because mm-hmm. then I knew there had to be a different way, you know, to help women in finance. And so that kind of set me on the on the career path. And uh, later on, when I went into finance, I also worked with FINRA, and that's the regulatory arm, the Securities and Exchange Commission. I work or I volunteer as an arbitrator to settle disputes. And they can be disputes between uh, employee and, and the organization or client against the advisor, all different types of disputes. And I've been doing that since 2000. But along the line, I got very interested in why some very good people make some very bad choices. And uh, and that got me to go back to get my doctorate from Creighton University and my master's in negotiated dispute resolution. So that was really the beginning of, of this, uh, of my entry into mediation and negotiation. There's so much in there. And one thing I want to pick up before before we move on is that very formative experience. It's this you go into this this bank, you have this condescending exchange. Yeah. And well, of course I don't wish anybody to have those sorts of situations because they are they can feel humiliating or devaluing. It's really good to, I think, have those situations so that it can help us de- develop empathy, to help us to what is it like when we're othered? What is it like when we're minimized? And in what situations where I'm in the majority, do I not even see that I'm in the majority and how I am treating other people? Mary, that's a very good point. And I know that's something that you're very good at. I, I witnessed you listening, which is the key, and asking questions to understand when we were at the conference. But that is the key. And it helps in in understanding and creating dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. I I taught a course a couple of times when I was in St. Louis at a a historically black college, and I was the only Caucasian person in the room. And it was such a great experience. I mean, the students were wonderful. And I didn't necessarily feel one way or the other, but I was aware of my skin color in a way that I have hardly ever aware. And so, and I think often fondly of what I learned and my interactions with those students and to be put in situations that are just different to have a, maybe a little, a peek under to develop and just think about things that are not on our radar, but that may be on somebody else's. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, as a matter of fact, the 1st of September, I had the chance to go to Kinshasa in the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo. And it was a consortium of business, academics, and uh, government. But I was one of two. I, I hear what you're saying about being the only person with a different skin color, something that made you different. And the assembly, most of the people spoke French. So... I was also at a disadvantage of not understanding a lot of the conversation. It was an aha moment for me because I thought, oh, yes, this is what it's like for immigrant populations that are trying to come to a country, uh, to the United States, and not being able to understand and being visibly different. It's It was a humbling experience. Mm. I think that's a really good example because uh, you're there for these these good reasons and you're trying to add value and how quickly we can look at somebody else who doesn't speak our language and think they don't have any, you know, why are they here? Um, what good are they doing? And of course, that's a narrative, an unfortunate, unfortunate narrative that is spun about a lot of immigrants in a variety of countries. Oh, you don't speak our language, so you are... A problem to be solved, not that immigration isn't a problem to be solved, but that the person themselves are lacking in some way, which is quite the opposite. We know they're really brave and creative and interesting and valuable individuals. That, you, that's so true. And, you know, me as an American, 
in certain circles, I wasn't looked well upon. You know, I was part of the problem in, you know, the sub-Saharan nation. Not me personally, but the country that I represent. So that is, that's so true now. Yeah, yeah. So you went on this journey to try to figure out why do good people do bad things? And yeah. do you have an answer for us? Because I'm waiting with bated breath. I want to know. You know, it's such an interesting ethical conundrum. And the way that I approach it is there's many philosophers and many researchers have developed decision-making steps. And James Rest was the first. There's about five steps. You know, you have to notice that there's a a problem that to be solved. And is it an ethical decision that has to be made? And then you make the decision and then you take action. It comes down to not taking time. For the for people who are sincere, it takes time to make a decision when you're faced with a challenge or a dilemma. And a lot of times in our own lives, we are under pressure. And uh, sometimes we can rationalize a decision. And sometimes there's just opportunity. It's there. So let's do it. So those that's kind of the basis of why people make bad decisions. The other thing that we found in our research is that, unfortunately, there are just some individuals who lack a step or quality moral obligation. They may lack it or not be as sensitive in different strengths, but There are people out there, and unfortunately, in my industry, in the finance industry, it attracts people that may not be as sensitive to their moral obligation. So that's, in my mind, that's how bad decisions get made. I think it's really on point. And so I know you're an educator and you you teach an MBA program right now, and when we think about teaching ethics, because I know that that is what what you do, you know, how do you teach people to be good when it's this moral obligation that they see or they don't see? You know, sometimes people think their only moral obligation is to their family or to themselves, right? So some sort of ethical egoism or, or something like that. And it seems to me, I really like what you said about opportunity. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie called A Simple Plan. It's about, I don't know, 20 years old now or so. And the basic story is that a a plane goes down and it's filled with money and these people find it and it turns out it's drug money. They don't know it at the time and they decide to hide it. And there's just really regular people in this small little town and they decide to hide the money. And as soon as people come looking for it, one thing leads to another. And by the end, the bodies have piled up high from these seemingly normal people who are seemingly quote unquote good people. But I think it's a really good exercise. I think about it a lot. And I used to show this movie that it really matters what our moral character is because morality isn't about luck, right? And it turns out it was very unlucky that they found this money and decided because they lacked the moral fortitude to say no to this seemingly lucrative opportunity, but it led them down this path and they could have said no and opted out at any time, but they, they didn't, which is a lot of times what happens is people, once they, once they go down that path, it's very hard to, 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 go, to back up. You know, that is so true. And, and your point's well taken. They weren't bad people. Right. It was just a, a circumstance opportunity and maybe a little bit of pressure too. You know, there was dollars there. They had mortgages to pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, understanding the underlying reasons is so important. And I think that's what mediation helps. You know, uh, you being a good mediator, you know, you draw out all the all the important information. So how do you help people develop this this step of seeing that they have a moral obligation, not just to their own enrichment in the in the financial sector, but moral obligation broadly to to people to treat them well. Treat them well. 
You know, the interesting thing I've found over the years is, uh, and I'll use I'll use financial professionals as an example. It's very easy for them to see ethical missteps in other people, but not themselves. And so in ethics training, cases that involve uh, circumstances that they may actually come into contact with, those seem to be good methods of teaching a path of decision-making. For students, and you know, you've taught students uh, for quite a while, I think that students need to know that they do have a good core basis of, they do have moral standards that they've acquired over the years. And to be able to rely on that or to call upon that is powerful. Yeah, I really agree with that. When when you're trying to help develop this this uh, moral obligation or seeing, it is it's much easier to to judge when we look at the circumstance that has no relevance to us. We don't see ourselves falling for that, or it's not that it's not that interesting to us. And we can say, yeah, I would never do that. Yeah, but to to really try to develop and be introspective by holding or giving case studies that they could really see themselves in. And, you know, that sort of that imagination. So what would I really do? And I think that's really important too. letting helping students see what their moral obligations or what their moral intuitions are. So how do you feel when someone steals from you? And why do you think that? And so what is your moral standard? But I think one thing, I don't know how successful I have been at this in my life as a teacher, but uh, so I'm a virtue ethicist, and I don't think that these moral standards, I have them, and therefore I will always have them. A lot of times, as you said, we make excuses unless we intentionally invest in our own moral health to say, okay, even if I'm presented with this bag of money that you know could go really wrong because it's from drug lords, uh, yeah. and I think for some reason I can get away with it, why would I not do that? Right. What what kind of moral center? And that's got to run deep. But we I think we all face those really difficult challenges. And it could simply be, what do I do with my parent who is aging? Or what do I do with my child who? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, as you all know, the an ethical dilemma is when there is no good answer. You Mm -hmm. you simply have to pick the best bad answer. But Having said that, it still takes uh, time and consideration and drawing on those strengths that you talked about uh, and knowing that you can draw on those strengths. Yeah, I think that's really important, helping people. When we think about conflict resolution, I I think one of the most important parts is, is showing the people that conflict resolution and mediation and other kinds of situations is about personal empowerment. And People won't speak up and they won't speak up for themselves and they won't have confident conversations, difficult conversations if they lack confidence and and they think, I, I don't know, I, you know, or they catastrophize or whatever it might be. But I think also with developing a rich moral life is developing that sort of those sort of confidences that come about with small wins, small intentional wins. That is so true. I couldn't have said it better. That's absolutely true. Everybody needs that. Yeah, I do. I, every, all the time. I talk about this stuff. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> that's right. The other day I was having a hard day and I said, oh, that's right. I'm supposed to be practicing resilience. You know, like this is this is the day because it's hard. It's easy to say I'm I'm so resilient when it's easy. But when you feel it, it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Shoot, I guess the universe wants to help me on this project. So Martha, when you think about all the different places that you've worked and the different people you've worked for, what is the best experience you've ever had with a colleague or a manager? And what resonated with you? What was so good about it? You know, I think probably in my present position, there's been people that I've worked with that have recognized their own needs and seen that. Perhaps I could be a partner in development. And a lot of times, in organ, the larger the organization, well, no matter what size the organization, there's a lot of territorial imperative 
that needs to be overcome to send the organization forward. And those individuals that can recognize and, and not only foster their growth, but foster through you. That's really, that's really a good thing to think about. How do organizations get in their own way? How do we get in our own way when we think we're protecting our little territory? We're actually diminishing it. And the more we speak into others, actually, the more we grow and our quote unquote territory grows because our influence grows and our capacities grow and then everybody's better. But we sometimes we get so focused on the little the little portion that we've put our stake in. Absolutely. And I, I catch myself all the time. And I think the older I get, the, the more I have to be cognizant of, of being aware. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in this space, uh, you know, there's, there are mediators out there, people who are doing, you know, alternative forms of dispute resolution. And I always try when I see somebody who is around my area, you know, there's a part of me as a business person who says, oh, that's what I do. And I try to catch myself immediately and say, hey, you know what, Mary, there's enough conflict to go around. Thank goodness more people are in on the project. You know, that's true. And what is the saying? The higher the water, the better the boats float. But one thing that I really admire about your practice is you've developed a niche that is answering problems and needs in your community, in your area. And a lot of times uh, academics or uh, practitioners want to go out and say, this is what you need. This is how we're going to do it instead of saying, you know, what what needs to be done and how can we best deliver services? And that's exactly what you've done. Well, I appreciate that. And certainly, you know, what mediation teaches us is that it's not about the practitioner. It's never about the practitioner. It's always about the parties because the whole goal is to help them, which is highly individual, is highly particular and personal. And the stakes are so high for the individuals or the organization. And I flit in and I flit out, but it is, it's theirs. Right. That's right. So Martha, as you think about the different people that you've worked with, surely you've had some conflict along the way. Um, Oh, yes. (laughs) Can you tell us maybe about a conflict you faced earlier in your career and how you dealt with it? And then maybe thinking back about it, how you might deal with it differently now, given what you know. Differently. When we moved back from Australia, I worked for an organization that there was issues with accounting. And our two secretaries were the ones that brought it to my attention. And a lot of times, we talk a lot about whistleblow. If you see an issue that needs to be brought to light, you really have to be very sure of the context, who you report to, and and probably most important, the intent. Do you want to ruin somebody's career or do you want to right a wrong? And so, you know, the individual was dismissed. But I think, you know, in answer to your question, if I would do it differently, I'm sure that I would. The first thing I would do is go back and look at my intent. You know, it, it has to be genuine. It has to be an ethical intent. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that was a good learning experience. That makes a lot of sense because a lot of times a conflict or a situation will, will will come across and we say, oh, well, this is just clear and this is a violation. And we do have a strong sense of justice and that is important. And But we sort of march on blindly without giving people their due process, which is very important. Right. I think for most, mostly in the U.S., the HR system is broken when it comes to mistakes and conflicts. Not always. And it's not because the HR people are bad. It's the systems in which they've inherited or they become the right arm or or the, the heavy for the CEO, the president, the legal team. It makes things worse where I have seen people who have done excellent work get called up on something and just, you know, dismissed without their side without being asked because people are so sure what the little facts they have and the damage that the damage to the individual, the damage to the rest of the organization for seeing people treated so disrespectfully. It's hard to overestimate. 
That's that's so true. And you know, it, like you said, it's devastating. And our professional, our our work life is such a big part of who we are. And to have that just crumble in front of us is, is like you said, it's devastating. And uh, unfortunately, I think HR has played the role of the heavy for upper management, and uh, that's how they secure their job, you know. Yeah. I see that a lot with downsizing, too. Mm, yes. You know, uh, if an organization, for all the right reasons, has to downsize, a lot of times it's HR that has to be the message bearer, but has to be quick and quick and mean about it. And that is so difficult because people do pour in their whole lives. I was just talking to somebody who has two young babies and they are devoting, you know, 12 hours a day to their job. And I just want to, of course I didn't because it was unprofessional of me to say, stop it. This job who you care so much about will let you go. And it's good to be invested in our jobs, but to recognize that a downturn in the economy, something happens that has nothing to do with your work ethic and your passion and your love. And so that, that sort of trauma that, I mean, that really that people face because, and I know downsizing can be necessary, but we should treat people according to our values from pre-hire to retire or fire or letting go. And every individual deserves to be treated and listened to. And even as we're doing something really hard, like downsizing them. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we start out and I know you start out with the simple golden rule. And the golden rule, every religion, every spiritual belief has a core in it. And treating others the way we'd like to be treated is the key, I guess. Yeah. And I think that also plays as we talk about moral development. And it, it is developing empathy and trying to humanize the other. It's so easy to other others because we're not in their heads and we we don't know what's going on. And especially when we feel hurt or minimized, unseen, uncared for, how quick we are almost like, you know, animals who just lash out because they've got a thorn in their paw and someone's trying to get it out and they're just consumed in, in their own pain. And the more we can do to develop empathy for one another when the times are easy, the easier it is to do it when things are tough. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And even let's suppose that in the situation where there was some irregularities with accounting and this person has done something wrong, you know, they're still a human person. We're always human persons at the end of the day. And that doesn't matter. That doesn't mean there are no consequences for our actions. Of course, there are which I think is a part of respecting people, respecting their decision-making, and therefore there sometimes are negative consequences. But again, even that person who maybe stole or did something unethical, we get to choose how we're going to respond to them as we would want them to do to us. Absolutely. And, you know, as you mentioned before, there's so much that needs to be known and understood. Like, was it a recommended practice, what he did? Was it suggested by one of the board of directors or condoned by one of the board of directors or you know you just you just don't know all the story yeah we do trick ourselves when we look at the quote-unquote cold hard facts as if facts tell us a story no we tell ourselves the story we we can spin you know just about any narrative and not just a spin but as you're right when we get the facts so somebody is late because they don't care about their job I tell myself, and it turns out I find out they're late because they're in a domestic violence situation and their spouse is controlling them and trying to make them lose their job. I now feel very differently about them being late. It's still the fact, quote unquote, of being late, but how I would deal with that, how to go, you know, the next steps are so vastly different. Anything to add to your understanding. My husband and I play the traffic game. So when we're going down the highway and if somebody's speeding around us, you know, we automatically think that they're crazy, but they might be having to get home quickly because the babysitter just left or, you know, maybe there's a, some other type of emergency. You just don't know what the story is until you ask questions and understand. I love that because 
a lot of times you're right. We tell ourselves the same dull story about somebody else. They are crazy. They don't care about anybody else. They are whatever. But I love that example because that's something really simple and fun that you can do. But anything that we can do to help us be creative and be curious, because these are all habits. We can habituate ourselves to be dull. We can habituate ourselves to be creative and empathetic. And it is a choice. And who we are today is a sum total of our choices. So what have I been choosing for the past 10 to 20 years? That's what you're getting today. Now, who you're getting tomorrow has to do with the things that I've chosen today. We're constantly making ourselves. And so when it comes to helping people develop conflict resolution skills, uh, what do you see are some best practice that we can do in the everyday, in our business life to have better conflict resolution in our places of work? You know, I think it gets back to being able to create genuine dialogue. Mm -hmm. And uh, I try to catch myself in, for example, saying, well, how are you today? And not really wanting to go down the path of finding out how somebody is that day. But um, catching myself and saying, well, how are they today? And what's happening with them? And why did this happen? And what are they going to do? And how can I help that type of thing? And being able to tease out information from them. And then it has to be mutual. Dialogue is a two-way street. So being able to say, you know, I have empathy. I understand uh, this happened to me. And this is what I did. That helps. And when it gets in a mediation situation that you do so well is it's creating dialogue between two two parties or two groups, which is even more exciting. But getting all parties interested in not only telling their own story genuinely, but listening and understanding the other story in a respectful way. I absolutely agree. Genuine dialogue. You know, how do we bring that about at work without being nosy and with being professional? And again, that's very individual because some people want to talk about their kids and some people just do not. And even with the person who doesn't want to talk about their kids, who doesn't want to talk about what happened on the weekend, that's absolutely fine. Finding that common ground because they're a person at work who you can still be interested in. And you can still find that appropriate way to be genuine back and offer information about yourself that matches their comfort level. So I think a lot lot of genuine dialogue is this, um, uh, the swaying together and finding that rhythm. But as you're right, you said, it takes seeing the other and spending a little time up front, noticing others and their individuality and the particularity and, and being interested, caring. That's exactly right. And you know, another thing, Mary, that we talked about is a lot of times dialogue is supported by the visual, you know, sitting down in front of somebody, you know, seeing their acceptance or their uh, surprise or those visual cues really augment understanding. And so if an individual finds it difficult to to verbalize, a lot of times picking up on visual cues is almost as important. And so that's a a challenge that we face uh, with increased hybrid and uh, remote work. And I'm sure you've been in mediations and I have too, where all it took was them getting in the same room, you know, or at least on the same screen to be like, oh, so that's what you meant in this email. Absolutely. Absolutely. I noticed a lot, uh, you know, I'm teaching online classes this fall term and communicating by writing, by internet is difficult to gauge yeah. uh, the nuances of meaning. It, it is. And it's very interesting that, you know, so much of our communication is our body language or intonation. And it's interesting to me yeah. how we so quickly want to deny our humanity or what good practices are in human communication. And we opt for one or the other. And we are unable to see how the variety of ways of communicating. And of course, communicating is also particular to who we're communicating with. But also it strikes me as some people have a hard time keeping their thoughts inside and it doesn't come out on their face. 
where many of us, those ideas go through, but we would never say them and we don't really mean them. And it's just a passing. Some people, they express that on their face and they don't really mean it. And it is a passing thought, but everybody else saw it. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) And I just recently encountered a situation like that. And the thing is we can address that. That that's a coaching situation. It's a a learning opportunity, not for only for that person. They may have no idea that that's how they're that they're being taken because it's not what they mean, and and so they don't know that that's how they're coming across to others, and others don't know that for that person it didn't mean that it was meaningless. That is so right. The roll of the eyes. Or we worked with a person who had a nervous laugh. And so, you know, when there was a critical topic, the person had a nervous laugh and it gave the impression of it being not an important situation or or whatever the other person was saying, it wasn't important. Being able to coach that. uh, Yeah. There's so many opportunities for us to invest in others and to be invested in. I did also want to mention crying because I know a lot of times women, or it's not just women, uh, who cry as a response and they don't mean anything by it. But I've also heard people say, oh, she's being manipulative. Oh, and I think, and I've said, no, that's just a a response that some people have when they're frustrated. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, being able to understand that it doesn't just mean one thing to one person. That's that's important. Yes. And 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 not to keep on going on on this topic, but of course we have people who uh, neurologically don't read social cues very well. They take things more literally. And so people get frustrated with them in any kind of, you know, in a personal situation, off situation. Why is this person being obstructionist? Or why is this person not... And again, if we take that time, as you mentioned, that genuine dialogue to be sensitive to the legitimate different ways in which we can contribute and in which we communicate, if we really want to take advantage of the diversity around us, that means it's diversity of communication and so on and so forth. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we are becoming a more diverse globe and being able to understand and work with different cultures effectively starts with understanding and it can create so many problems by not opening your mind to different cultural differences or different diversities to you know physiologically mental issues everywhere we go there's diversity right and and i i am so glad that this past However, many years we've been talking about diversity. I think originally, maybe when these ideas were brought up or more in in the public square, diversity was seen in these small little binaries. But, you know, we talk about intersectionality, which to me just means people are diverse. Of course, we have lots of different interests and backgrounds. And the more we surround ourselves with diversity, the better off we're going to be. But we're only going to be better off if we are curious we ask questions. We really do think that two heads are better than one, five heads are better than one, that if we can really think, oh, what are the strengths here? But we're only going to do that Do that if we develop having these genuine conversations. You bet. I agree 100%. And the potential for growth, particularly in business, to have to open the door to diversity for new ideas and new talents and new communication styles it's you know it's be it's so critical um, for the community for business for the globe i can just imagine somebody listening to this and rolling their eyes because they're like (laughs) yeah but you guys don't know who i work with you don't know these yahoos and how they act and i just don't like them You know, I've had that question before, uh, you know, what do I do if I just don't like somebody? I I can't explain it from the moment I first met them. I have a good friend that said, you know, I, I don't understand this, but I just don't like this certain person. And uh, 
I think the key is we don't want everybody to love each other. We want everybody to try to understand each other. And that might open some doors. But that's true, too. <laughs> what do you do, Mary, when that happens? Well, personally, uh, on my better days, as I try to grow and mature, I recognize it's a me problem that I really do believe in the good of diversity. And I really do intellectually want to live and let live. And yet some people annoy me. Um, and I know I annoy other people. Not, I mean, I think I am fabulous, but I'm not everybody's cup of tea and everybody's not my cup of tea. And that is reality. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that has nothing to do with civility, right? So I may not want to go have drinks with that person. That has nothing to do with me treating them well. Yeah. And I think, you know, life gives us different tests that we can prove to ourselves. No, we can move beyond that. And uh, even, you know, the ability to smile or say hello or, you know, make a space for somebody. You know, those tests prove that, yet yeah, we can do it. Right. And that's what, again, I, I put everything back to conflict resolution because that's where, you know, I, and I recognize that's my own sort of narrow focus. Sure. But that's, that's what I love about really developing conflict resolution skills, because I see that I don't have to make the world in my image. I really can live and let live. I don't have to have everybody see the facts the way that I see them, value what I value. And if somebody is making my life difficult at work, insofar as I'm not their boss, and other, there's a lot of different issues there, but there are institutional, as you already mentioned, there's institutional reasons. There are lots of different outside factors. And the more curious I can be, the more I can free myself to be bothered by them because that's a choice. I can choose to be bothered by what I think is somebody else's bad work ethic or whatever, but that's on me. It's yeah. on nobody else. And so that means it's wonderful and freeing because that means I'm the solution. They're not the solution. I'm the absolutely. solution. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it would be a pretty boring world if everybody, well, probably be a pretty dysfunctional world if everybody thought like I did. But the understanding that people don't think the way that I do, it's not my, it's not my issue. It's, you know, something I just need to accept and move on. I absolutely agree. And I think another thing that helps me is that we're all people in progress. I'm not finished. And if someone judged me about how I acted or behaved 20 years ago, I understand that, but I hope they would allow me to grow and develop as a person. And I need to extend the same grace to others. So maybe somebody is, and from my perspective, being obstructionist or being very difficult and selfish. Again, that's my perspective, but that's not who they are. I don't get to say who somebody else is. And actually, you know, everybody is progressing or has the ability to change in one way or the other. Well spoken. I couldn't agree more, Mary. That's great. <laughs> so Martha, as we close today, if you think about the future of work and you work with all these uh, MBA students and they're going out and they're the, they're, they're the leaders, current leaders and, and future leaders, what would you have them do? to bring about a work environment that not only treats people with dignity and respect, but also encourages people to flourish. What, what do you think needs to happen? You know, I'm a big proponent of developing, each one of us should actually formalize our own code of ethics, our own moral standards, and be aware of it. And it's a roadmap that we can use going forward. The truth is we all have our own personal code of ethics, but there's magic in committing it to paper. And so, you know, in one of my classes, that's actually what we do. And I'm always surprised at the intensity of how students want to want to develop their code, personal code of ethics. And like I said, we all have our own personal code, but committing it to paper is, you know, it is a key, I think. I think that's brilliant. And I there's so much that happens when it's one thing to know it up here, it's another thing to articulate it. Because once we do that, 
then we can start to see holes or development or is this, this is things incongruent. How is, is this really what I mean? Is there something more about, oh, gosh, I love that. That's, that's really nice. I hope it works. <laughs> yes. Well, Martha, thank you so much for being on Conflict Managed. What a joy to chat with you today. I just appreciate visiting with you so much and I can't wait till we get together again. Absolutely. Take care. Take care. Martha, thank you so much for being on Conflict Managed. It was such a joy to talk with you. I so much enjoy getting to know you at the NAFCOM conference. A shout out to everyone who makes these conferences available to people that we can rejuvenate and meet new people and be encouraged to keep on keeping on. So if you're thinking about going to that conference, do it. Put yourself out there, meet new people, learn new things, and go back and share your wisdom with other people. If you haven't had a chance to check out my new book, How to Be Unprofessional at Work, Tips to Ensure Failure, it's available on Amazon. It's a book that starts a conversation at a pretty low stakes level as to what our expectations are at work and how we can have healthier work environments. Come back. We have new episodes every Tuesday. Conflict Managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services and hosted by me, Mary Brown. You can find us online at 3pconflictrestoration.com. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care. Take care.